Hello, I'm Bill DeMay, Executive Vice Chair for the DC Young Republicans, and this is the District Download. Welcome back, everybody. This is episode number three of our 2021 Year in Review mini-series. I'm your host, Bill DeMay, and today we're going to be talking about a topic that has been with our generation for the better part of 20-plus years. We're talking about Afghanistan and the Biden administration's disastrous pullout and withdrawal from Afghanistan this past summer. We're also talking about the immigration crisis on the southern border, as well as the rise of China with Jim Carafano. Jim Carafano, the leading expert at national security and foreign policy challenges, is the vice president of Heritage's Catherine and Shelby Colomb Davis Institute for National Security and the E.W. Richardson Fellow. Carafano, a 25-year Army veteran, joined Heritage in 2003 as a senior research fellow in Homeland Security and Missile Defense. He worked with Kim R. Holmes, his predecessor as vice president and director of Davis Institute, to produce Heritage's groundbreaking documentary film, 33 Minutes, Protecting America and the New Missile age. Carafano now directs Heritage's team of foreign defense policy experts in three centers on the front lines of international affairs, the Allison Center, the Asian Studies Center, and the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom, and the Center for National Defense. Carafano served as president of a nonprofit organization, East Spirit Decor, which educated the public about veterans' affairs. In this capacity, he co-produced and co-wrote the documentaries Veteran Nation, an official selection of the 2013 GI Film Festival, and Why We Fight 9-11 in America's Longest War, circa 2018. Before coming to Heritage, Carafano was a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Washington Policy Institute dedicated to defense issues. A graduate of West Point, Carafano holds a master's degree and a doctorate from Georgetown University, as well as a master's degree in strategy from the U.S. Army War College. The views and opinions expressed during today's episode are our own and in no way representative views, opinions, or policy positions of our respective employers. This is meant to be a free exchange of topics relevant to YRs based in the D.C. area and beyond. Without further ado, let's hear from Jim a little bit about Afghanistan. All right, we've got another great episode for you wrapping up the year. We're going to be talking a little bit about Afghanistan, the immigration, the border crisis, and uh, the rise of China. We have here with us today, we have Jim Carafano from the Heritage Foundation. Jim, how are you today? What? If we're wrapping up the year, shouldn't it be good news? Shouldn't we be talking about happy stuff? Maybe like puppies or something? Well, that's what I'm trying to hope to get from you, Jim. Maybe you've got some good news from this year. Maybe things will turn around in 2022. I'm an I optimist. Love, I love an optimist. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm an eternal optimist. But um, I know we usually try to get to know you as we uh, start off these episodes. But I know we're a bit in a time crunch today. So we're just going to get right in. Uh, so just on Afghanistan, can you walk us through a little bit about how we got to this point? We've been involved in the country going back decades at this point, ranging from covert ops in the mid to late 80s, as demonstrated in Charlie Wilson's War, which is a movie that came out not too long ago, all the way up to a 20 year presence of U.S. armed forces on the ground. Uh, can you just walk us through then to now a little bit? Well, I, you know, I think the important thing for people to understand is not why we went into Afghanistan 20 years ago on 9-11, but why we were still there. Um, because the reason why we were still there was the different from the reason why we went in. And this is not unusual at all in, in history or in, in, or in foreign policy or international affairs. These, these are dynamic. 
We still have troops in Western Europe and NATO. They're there for a different reason than when we invaded Europe in, in 1944 and went into Normandy. The reason why we still had troops in Afghanistan was because of two things that were important to the United States. One was, in some ways, actually going back to 9-11, we'd seen what happened when the terrorists have a sanctuary where they can recruit and train and operationalize terrorist attacks against the rest of the world uh, on a large scale. We saw it not just in Afghanistan, we saw it in ISIS, in, in Iraq and Syria, we saw it in Libya, we saw it in Somalia. It's never a good idea to give the terrorists a massive playground that they can use as a platform for attacking the rest of the world. So we didn't want to see that happen again. The other thing is we, we wanted a stable South Asia. Um, Afghanistan is part of a collection of countries, which includes India. India is a vital strategic partner for the United States. They are a key bulwark against the expansion of Chinese influence. We want a stable South Asia. So India is a better partner for the United States in dealing with China. So those were the reasons why we stayed. And, and we were achieving that at a relatively modest cost. We were spending less before we left in a year in Afghanistan. We were spending less in an entire year than we used to spend under Obama in a week. Let, let's just let that number sink in. And, and actually, the cost of leaving Afghanistan was as expensive as having stayed in Afghanistan for, for three or four years under the, it was it was actually way cheaper to stay than it was to leave. Um, we were actually taking no American casualties, hadn't been an American casualty in Afghanistan for a year, over a year. We weren't fighting an endless war. The Afghans were fighting to protect their country. We were providing advice and support for them, but we weren't fighting a war. So at a relatively modest cost, we were protecting US vital interests. Um, well, what's happened? Well, since we left, what's happened is, None of those things are better for the United States, right? We're much more concerned about a transnational terrorist attack now than we were before we left. We have a vast open space. We, we, we have no idea what's going on there. As a matter of fact, just this today, there were reports in the press of a uh, potential transnational terrorist that got arrested at the U.S. border trying to come in the United States. So we have a much graver terrorist attack because of leaving than we did before. So that's one. And of course, we're worried about Chinese influence and instability in the region. And, and just from a humanitarian perspective, a million people will probably starve to death this winter in Afghanistan. Let that number sink in, a million people, which was way, way more people than were dying in Afghanistan last year. You know, despite everything else, Afghanistan, when we left, that was a, there was a growing economy, even though they were in war. Afghanistan economy is actually growing faster than countries that weren't at war. Um, there were vast numbers of women in the workplace, children were in school, all, all of that's gone. So to argue that any good came from leaving is just a falsehood. Nothing for the United States is better off. Nothing for the Afghan people is better off than before. Um, so that's why I was just half joking when I said, let's, you know, why are we ending the year on bad news? Because there is no good news out of Afghanistan. We, we sacrificed all of our interests. When we left all of our interests unprotected. And of course, the rest of the world looked at us and, and we look feckless. Our, our European allies think that we ran away. Our Asian allies think we ran away. Um, so I, I, it's, it's hard, unless you're a, a, a Taliban terrorist or the Chinese, um, it's hard to look, or, 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 or Al-Qaeda, it's hard to look at that and say anything good 
came out of Afghanistan this year because of what we did. And I wanted to just kind of boil back into your your opening summary right there. Um, I've heard a little bit about the Biden administration saying that they have an over the horizon capacity. But given that, you know, with Bagram Air Force Base no longer being underneath U.S. control and not really having any bases at all in the area and Pakistan and the nearest operating bases being in the Gulf, is that true or is that is that just kind of a, a bald faced lie coming from the administration? Well, it is a lie. And, and when they actually said it, they knew it was a lie. They, they, they knew that we have no base where we can actually collect real-time intelligence and do real-time strikes against terrorists in Afghanistan. They, they knew that for a fact, because there isn't. I mean, the closest you can get is, is, is literally thousands of miles away. And actually maintaining any kind of capability is incredibly expensive and eats up an enormous amount of resources. And the other thing is, is think about it, you know, how many how many over the horizon strikes have we done in Afghanistan since we left? Zero. Are, yeah, not you, that I've heard of in the news. Yeah, well, yeah. Are you telling me there's no terrorists in Afghanistan? Well, of course there are, right? So um, we're we are we are literally you know you mentioned Charlie Wilson's war. We, we literally know less of what's going on inside Afghanistan today than we did when Bill Clinton was president was and was lobbing cruise missiles at the the Taliban or when the Russians were there and we were and the uh, the Afghans were fighting the Russians. These are just, uh, you know, again, going back to your your opening statement again, saying this is good news. This is not looking like good news. Um, but just I will say this, that this is a, a topic that is one that hits home for me, given that the U.S. went into Afghanistan when I was only a kid. And uh, one of my childhood best friends that was in the kindergarten class with me on 9-11 ended up going uh, doing two tours of duty over there. And so, you know, this is just this is an issue that really hits all home with a lot of different generations, a lot of different groups like the veterans community um, and just just kind of your, your take on it. Um, why do you think the situation in Afghanistan deteriorated so quickly, quicker than the original anticipated timeline that was given to us of being in 60 90 days uh, it ended up being a single weekend if i'm not mistaken well, I, look uh, look i think it was a a, a a strategy based on all kinds of unrealistic assumptions to begin with um trump had always said i want to leave afghanistan but it was always based on conditions on the ground not on the clock biden just said we're leaving as soon as he said that he advantaged the enemy in every way possible. Look, he he had believed that Afghanistan was going to collapse. His plan wasn't to save Afghanistan. His plan was, we'll get out of Afghanistan. It'll collapse after we leave. And then we'll say, oh, not our fault, not our problem. So it was a, it was a bad plan to begin with. Um, of course, the, once everybody knew America was leaving, um, bad things were going to happen because it was the American presence that was keeping the situation stable. It's like a you know game of Jenga. When you pull out the, it all collapses. And, you know, I, and I get, you know, and I think I think Biden convinced himself that, you know, that the whole endless war rhetoric and Americans didn't care. But look, Americans did care. Americans don't like being humiliated. They don't like being embarrassed. And they certainly don't like waking up with the prospects of one day they could be murdered in, a, in their bed because of another 9-11, all because of a, a disastrously bad decision. So it was bad politics. It was incredibly bad strategy because. The president, one, announced we're leaving, which gave every incentive to the enemy to come on. He said we're not putting in any additional troops, which made it virtually impossible to control the U.S. withdrawal in a way to protect U.S. troops um, and people you're trying to get out. So it, 
it, it will go down in history as one of the worst strategically managed decisions ever and, and by any American president. And I am a history buff. So when I was looking at the images that were taking place this summer coming from Afghanistan, I couldn't help but draw a parallel to the fall of Saigon. Uh, would you would it be accurate to say that this was a 21st century version of Saigon or are there other uh, historical par- parables that we could draw on what happened in well, Afghanistan? I think in both ways, it was identical. You know, first of all, the, the reason why South Vietnamese collapsed was because the U.S. just withdrew all support. I mean, Congress cut off aid to South Vietnam. The South Vietnamese could no longer defend themselves. And so they were swept into the sea. Uh, and and. And the same is true in Afghanistan. When the U.S. withdrew support, Afghanistan collapsed. Um, the other thing is also, the other way it's, uh, I think, a perfect parallel is, look at what happened after Vietnam. The Russians read the American withdrawal from Vietnam as a sign that America was overreaching on the verge of collapse. And that precipitated a decade, really, of Russians stepping up uh, insurgent warfare, terrorists against the, United, against the United States, the Middle East, Latin America, and Africa really trying to push America over the brink. So our enemies got more aggressive and more violent. And, and I think we're actually seeing that after Afghanistan. The Russians have gotten more aggressive. The Iranians have gotten more aggressive. The Chinese have gotten more aggressive. Um, I think the potential for a terrorist attack is infinitely greater than it was only a year ago. So yeah, it, you know, for somebody that, that lived through the, with uh, the withdrawal from Vietnam in 75, there's a lot of historical parallels that, that seem eerily relevant. So I have two more questions on Afghanistan. The first is, is if you were commander in chief, how would you have handled the withdrawal or would you have withdrawn at all? Um, that's my first question. And my second question is what implications does Afghanistan have on U.S. foreign policy going into 2022 and even the next decade? Well, I mean, I would I would do what a president's supposed to do, which is put America's interests first, say, what are America's interests? Don't let the country become a terrorist sanctuary and you know, don't have it be a source of instability in the region. And those factors would, would have driven our actions on the ground. I thought the President Trump's strategy was sound as long as it, it remained committed to the actual strategy, which is the United States will withdraw when we are assured that conditions on the ground are stable um, to, to, allow, to allow us to move out. And you know, the original plan was not that we were going to leave. The original plan is we would go district by district. Each district would be disarmed and demobilized. And then when that was proven out, then, then we would do that until eventually we would reach a settlement. They never trusted the Taliban to just do what they're because, of course, the Taliban are untrustworthy. Um, so, I, I, again, I think the, the problem with Biden is he put his politics ahead of national interests. He thought that, that Americans were going to be fine with this. He thought that he would get credit for ending endless wars. It was all about, he thought this was good politics as opposed to good policy. And I, I do think it will play in a future elections. I mean, I do policy, not politics, but one is America's credibility was greatly damaged. Americans are going to want that reversed. Our allies around the world are going to want to see more, uh, uh, you know, uh, better actions in the future. Um, and, and I do think people will hold them accountable. And I think we haven't seen all the other shoes dropped yet. There's still a potential, there's still many people still trapped there. There's the potential for hostage situations. Um, there's a potential for terrorist attacks. Uh, there's a potential for instability and insurgent warfare. So 
we haven't even seen all the bad things coming out of Afghanistan. And the other thing is, is look, Afghanistan's not a one-off. It's not just Afghanistan that people look at foreign policy and say, we look weak. It's Nord Stream 2 and you know, gifting that to gifting the pipeline to rush to Putin. Um, it's looking weak in Ukraine. Um, it's it's looking weak against the Chinese. So uh, I think the cumulative effect of this is is Americans, I think, will want a stronger foreign policy. I, people misread the whole end the endless war thing. Nobody wants to fight endless wars. Nobody wants America to be the world's babysitter, <coughs> excuse me, or the world's uh, policeman. Um, but they want America to be strong and protect America's interests. And I, I think that's what people will be looking for in future elections as well. So I want to move on now to the border crisis. Can you give us a bit of a situational update on the southern border? Can you compare also the situation now versus where we were exactly one year ago? Because I'm pretty sure, as as everybody listening knows, it is not the same situation. Well, we're seeing floods across the border that we haven't seen in 40 years. I mean, we're we're almost running out of data to say there there is ever. Anything as bad as this. We, the border has never been this open in modern history. Since we have tried recording data of what's going on the border, we have never seen this much illegal traffic. And it's not just humans, it's everything. It's transnational gangs, it's criminals, it's opioids. We have opioid deaths in the United States at a record level. And that's because opioids are so cheap because so many of them are flooding in through Mexico. So, by every credible measure, we have a completely unsecure border. Um, it's obviously a public health issue because we've had literally two million people walk across without any public health checks or conditions whatsoever. Uh, it's a, a criminality issue. The, the cartels have made literally billions of dollars in the last year. Um, there's, there's no company in the world that has reaped profits like they have off of what's gone on in the last year. And it is a real national security concern. I mean, when you have a border that is that wide open and literally we're seeing migrant routes all over the world redirect to, to, to come across the United States, we have people from over hundred countries walk into the Southern border. Terrorists are gonna do that because they're gonna find it's the most secure and easiest way to get in the United States. So I, I think it's a real grave national security threat. And so with that, being already, as you've said, a national security threat, you know, what is your policy prescription? How do we fix this? And what are some of the steps that need to be taken in order to reduce some of these numbers uh, going into 2022? Well, ironically, we know exactly how to do it. Remember people who say, oh, you can't secure the border or, oh, you can't deport people or you can't, you know, keep people from, none of that was true. I mean, in the, in the four years running up to this, we're probably the most secure the border's ever been. We see the biggest decreases in transborder crime, um, the biggest decreases in moving of drugs. Um, we saw the large, large, uh, significant increase in deportation. We actually saw the illegal population in the United States start to decline. Um, so, you know, it's, it seems pretty glib to say we should just go back to what we were doing before, but, but literally it's, is we should just go back to what we were doing before because everything we were doing before was working. And, and, and I don't care what it costs, it was cheaper. If you add up all the costs between the opioid deaths and the illegal uh, traffic and the criminal activity, it's way, way cheaper just to secure the border and enforce immigration law. I, look, I, I make a prediction. 
absolutely completely believe it's true. Who's ever elected in president in 2024, the day they walk in office in 20 on, uh, in January 2025, the Amer- they're not just going to have a mandate from the American people. The American people are going to demand that they immediately secure the border and begin enforcing immigration laws. And anybody that's running for president today that doesn't have a plan to do that on the first day they're in office, then they are behind the power curve. Well, one thing that sticks out to me is if you go back to the Democratic primary debates back in 2019 and early 2020, you'll see that when the question was asked, would you give all legal aliens across the border free health care? Every one of the candidates essentially raised their hands. That image is stuck with me this entire time. Do you think that also had a, you know, a contributing effect to basically saying to, you know, the populations, the world out there saying, hey, doors open, come through the southern border as as you will. Well, it, it's interesting. If you go back and you look at the that race, um, that that race was not on immigration and border security. That virtually never came up during the campaign. And when it did, it was bad. When all those everybody raised their hand and said, Let, let's give them all help, that was a bad day for the Democrats. The one debate where Biden said, you know, you know, pretty much let's have open board. It was, it, it, it was a disaster for him. So the only time the Democrats actually raised it on the campaign trail, it went bad. It was not a campaign issue. Um, and, and if they, if they had run on the policies that they're doing now, it would have been a disaster for them at the polls. I, I, this is not a winning issue with the American people. And the American people do not want unsecured borders and they don't want unlimited immigration and they don't want to bear the fiscal burdens of, of hosting the entire rest of the world. They're just The numbers on this are, are staggering and they, they, they cross demographics, they cross party lines. You know, elites who have nothing to do with actually bearing the cost of illegal immigration think this is a wonderful thing, but everyday Americans don't. And, and this is... This is not a winning issue for anybody that thinks that open border policies are something that Americans embrace because because they're not. And one last question on this before we shift into our final topic. Do you think there will come a moment where the Biden administration will change course and crack down on some of these border crossings? Or do you think this is going to continue to persist until 2024 and until a new administration comes into office in 2025? You know, I think it's reflective of a lot of issues. You know, the president ran as a moderate. Um, I think vast smart of Americans would have been happy with that. But the reality is, is, is the far left of his party were only content with that message because they thought it might help get Trump out of office. They had no interest in our government actually being a moderate government. Um, they have no interest in the president being moderate. And they won't allow, even if this president wanted to, they'll never allow him to be a moderate on any issues. Um, this is not you know, Bill Clinton's Democratic Party, where, you know, Clinton could shift to the middle and, you know, cooperate with Republicans. The the radical wing of the party will never let Biden do that, even if he wanted to. So I, I think it'll be very, very difficult for this, for them on this issue, and a whole bunch of issues to ever move to a moderate position um, anytime in their presidency. I think this is going to be one of the, the bellwether issues of the 2020. And I don't say that as a, a, a political person, because I'm not, I don't do politics, I do policy. But I just think this is an issue which is which is going to be a, a, a front and center issue in the in 2022 and 2024. 
Yeah, especially with those running in uh, purple districts as well. So my last topic, I only have a few more uh, minutes, but I do have a few questions on this. So with China, what does the rise of China mean for the United States? You know, we've seen China rise over the past couple of decades and their rise continues to increase uh, both economically, militarily. Uh, you know, are we seeing an apex here or are we seeing this trend continue on an exponential rate? Well, you know, I think a, a couple of things are, are true. One is there is no question that China is becoming more powerful, but there's just no. There's also no question that this, this regime is a, an adversary of the United States, that they see the rise of their power only possible at the extent of diminishing US power and indeed the West. I mean, you know, I, I tell people for all the differences that we and our allies and friends have in common is we all believe in free elections, we all believe in human rights, and we all believe in free enterprise in, in our own way. The Chinese don't believe in any of those things. Matter of fact, they see those things as an obstacle to the expansion of their power and influence. So they are in a war against us. There's just no question about that. Um, and, and it's not going to stop. They're, they're, good, they're only getting worse. She's consolidating power. It's only getting more powerful. Um, there's, I don't think any question that China is the pacing threat in the world today. But you know, I like to remind people is you know, people talk, so should I worry about China or should I worry about Russia or should I worry about Iran or North Korea? And, and, the, and so many people say, oh, if China is a problem, let's just focus on China. I mean, look, the problem with that is it's like the guy that goes into the doctor and says, and the doctor says to him, he says, well, you know, I did your health scan here and you have like a brain tumor and a bad heart and cancer. You know, which one of the three do you want me to cure? And you're like, well, doc, you know, I'd like you to cure all three because I want to live. I mean, this is the problem is, is yeah, China may be the pacing threat in the world, but you cannot ignore Russia. Russia can destabilize all the Western Europe. You can't ignore Iran. Iran can destabilize Europe and the Middle East. So I mean, the United States has got to be able to deal with these actors because they're all a threat to our interests. Again, we're not the world's policemen who are a global power with global interests and global responsibilities. And if we don't look after our stuff, nobody else is going to do it. And, and if you do what Biden has done, which is really tried to say, let's placate or ameliorate or, you know, give these, it, it, it doesn't work. It just makes them more aggressive and more dangerous. This is exactly what happened under Obama. We shouldn't be surprised it's happening again. It's the same people running the government. And, and we've seen the opposite. The opposite is not endless wars. The opposite is, is, is not bankrupting ourselves on defense or the opposite is what we did before Biden was president, which is essentially peace through strength. We said, look, we're going to demonstrate the willingness to protect our interests. We will force you guys to respect that. Or we will smack you in the head and, and our enemies feared us. And, and now they don't, and they're taking advantage of us. I mean, it's just kind of that simple. That's where we are. Well, hopefully things change and uh, I hope they change fast. I know we've covered a lot of depressing topics, but you know, as an optimist, I'm, I'm hopeful things will change for the better. And uh, that's going to wrap it up with uh, uh, Jim Carafano here. You can find Mr. Carafano on the Heritage Foundation's website, as well as on Twitter at JJ Carafano. Jim, is there anything you'd like to plug in before we let you go? Yeah. I, you know, I look, nobody is happy that our foreign policy is terrible. Um, we all want this the president to do well, because we all want an America that's that's free, safe, and prosperous. So we all want our president to be successful. But, but the reality is, is the policies that will work in the in the world are the ones 
where our, our enemies fear us and our friends respect us. And, and we should all pray to get back to that because that in the end is one going to keep America's free, safe and prosperous. And I, I'd love for people next Christmas to be able to sleep at night and, and know that America is a respected force in the world as opposed to what the challenges that we're, I think, facing now because we, we look demonstrably weak. And I think that's, that has to change. Well, I think that's an optimistic note to leave things on. Again, thank you, Jim. And uh, Merry Christmas and hope you have a great time with your family. Thank you. On behalf of the D.C. Young Republican Executive Board, we thank you for listening to the District Download. Make sure to hit that subscribe button, give us a five-star review, and share this episode with your friends. The District Download is currently available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, and wherever else you may listen to podcasts. Thank you.